Chapter Thirteen of The Thing from the Lake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Thing from the Lake by Eleanor M. Ingram. Chapter Thirteen. For may not the devil send to their fantasy, their senses being dulled and as it were asleep, such hills and glistering courts whereunto he pleaseth to delude them? King James's Demonology Now I have to record how I walked into the oldest snare in the world. Perhaps it was the sense of her near presence brought home to me by her handprint on the table so close to where my hand rested. Perhaps it was her speech of presently leaving me to return no more. Or perhaps both these joined in urging on my determination to learn more of Desire Mitchell before some unknown bar fell between us. I only know that I passed into a mood of trapped exasperation at my helplessness and lack of knowledge. It seemed imperative that I should act to save us both, act soon and surely, yet inaction was bound upon me by my ignorance. Who was she? Where did she live? What bond held her subject to the thing from the barrier? What gates were to close between us? Why could she not put her hand in mine, any night, and let me take her away from this haunted place? Why, at least, not come to me in the light, and let me see her face to face? I was a man groping in a labyrinth, while outside something precious to him is being stolen. For the first time I found myself unable to work, unable to share our household life with Phillida and Vere, or to find relaxation in driving about the countryside. Anger against desire herself stirred at the bottom of my mind. Desire, who hampered me by the word of honor in which she had netted me so securely. It was then that my enemy from the unknown places began to whisper of the book. I encountered that enemy in a new mood. We did not meet at the breach of the mighty wall, confronted in death conflict between its will and mine. Instead, night after night, it crept to my window as at our first meeting. I started awake to find its awful presence blackening the starlight where it crouched opposite me, its intelligence breathing against mine. As always, my human organism shrank from its unhuman neighborhood. Chill and repugnance shook my body, while that part of me which was not body battled against nightmare paralysis of horror. But now it did not menace or strive against me. It displayed a dreadful suavity I might liken to the coiling and uncoiling of those great snakes who are reported to mesmerize their prey by looping movements and figures melting from change to change in the hunger dance of Ka. There was a book that held all I longed to know, it whispered to me, a book telling of the woman she did not wish me to read for fear I should grow overwise and make her mine. The book was here, in my house. I might arise and find, if I would be guided by it. 
I thrust the whispers away. How could I trust my enemy? If such a book existed, which seemed improbable, there was a taint of disloyalty to desire in the thought of reading without her knowledge. The thing was not turned away. How could I do harm by learning what she was, unless she had evil to conceal? Did I fear to know the truth? As for the book's existence, I had only to accept guidance from it? I persisted in refusal. But the idea of the book followed me through my days like a wizard's familiar, dogging me. Where could such a volume be hidden? In what secret nook in wall or floor? How came a book to be written about the girl I supposed young, unknown, and set apart from the world? Was I letting slip an opportunity by my fastidious notions of delicacy? Indecision and curiosity tormented me beyond rest. Phillida and Vere began to consider me with puzzled eyes. Christina developed a habit of cooking individual dishes of a special succulence and triumphantly setting them before me as a surprise, a kindness which of course obliged me to eat whether I was hungry or not. I suspect my little cousin abetted her in this transparent ruse. I pleaded the heat as an excuse for all. We were in late August now. Cicadas sang their dry chant in the fields, where the sun glared down upon Vere's crops and painted him the fine bronze of an Indian. Our lake scarcely stirred under the hot, still air. It was after a day of such heat, succeeded by a night hardly more cool, that the lights in my room quietly went out. I was sitting at my table, some letters which required answers spread before me while I brooded, pen between my fingers, upon the mystery which had become my life. For the moment I attributed the sudden failure of light to some accident at the powerhouse. Not for long. The hateful cold that crept like freezing vapor into the room, the foul air of damp and corruption pouring into the scented country atmosphere, the frantic revolt of body and nerves. Before I turned my eyes to the window, I knew the monster from the frontier crouched there. Weakling, it taunted me. Puny from of old, how should you prevail? By your fear, the woman stays mine. Miserable earth-crawler, in whose hand the weapon was laid, and who shrinking let it fall unused, the end comes. The book? I gasped against my better judgment. The book was the weapon. No, or you would have not offered it to me. Coward, believe so. Hug the belief while you may. The offer is past. Past? A madness of the bafflement and frustrated curiosity gripped and shook me. I take the offer, I cried in passion and defiance. If there is such a book, show it to me. The thing was gone. Light 
quietly filled the lamps. Or was it that I had opened my eyes? I gripped the arms of my chair, waiting. For what? I did not know. Only all the horror I ever had felt in the presence of the thing was slight compared to the fear that presently began to flow upon me as an icy current. There, in the pleasantly lighted room, alone, I sank through depths of dread, down into an abyss of despair. Down! A long sigh of rising wind passed through the house like a sucked breath of triumph. Windows and doors drew in and out against their frames with a rattling crash, then hung still with unnatural abruptness. Absolute stillness succeeded. I felt a very light shock, as if the ground at my feet was struck. I fled from the terror for the first time. Yes, coward at last, deserter from that unseen frontier's defense, I found myself in the hall outside my room, leaning sick and faint against the wall. Behind me the door shut violently, yet I felt no current of air to move it. From the other side of the house there sounded the click of latch, then a patter of soft-shod feet. Phillida came hurrying down the hall toward me. She was wrapped in some silky pink-flowered garment. Her short hair stood out around her head like a little girl's well-brushed crop. She presented as endearingly natural a figure, I thought, as any man could seek or imagine. The wisdom of Ethan Vere who had garnered his love there. "'Cousin!' she exclaimed. "'The hall light is so dim. "'You almost frightened me when I glimpsed you standing there. "'Did the wind wake you, too? "'I think we're going to have a thunderstorm. "'It is so hot and gusty. "'I heard poor Bagheera mewing and scratching at the door, "'so I was just going down to let him in before the rain comes.' "'Yes,' I achieved. Then, finding my voice secure, I will let in the cat. Where is Vere? He did not wake up, so I tiptoed out. Why? I do not like to have you going about the house alone at this hour. Her eyes widened, and she laughed outright. Why, Cousin Roger, what a funny idea to have about our very own house. I have one of the electric flashlights you bought for us all. See? What could I tell her of my vision of her womanly softness and timidity brought to bay by the thing of horror down in those empty lower rooms? How did I know it stocked no prey but me? Its clutch was upon Desire Mitchell. These were its hours between midnight and dawn. Tramps. I explained evasively. Give me the light. But she pattered down the stairs beside me, kimono lifted well above her pink-flowered slippers, one hand on the balustrade. The light glinted in the white topaz that guarded her wedding ring, a richer jewel than any diamond, in the sight of one who knew the tender thought with which she had set it there. 
No, the horror was not for her, clothed in her wholesome goodness as in armor of proof. Surely, for such as she, the barrier stood unbreached and strong. When I opened the front door, Bagheera darted in like a hunted cat. A drift of mist entered with him. Looking out, I saw the night was heavy with a low-hanging fog that scarcely rose to the treetops, a ground mist that eddied in smoke-like waves of gray where our light fell upon it. Such mists were common here, yet I shivered and shut it out with relief. While I refastened the lock, Bagheera purred around my ankles, pressing caressingly against me, as if thanking me after the manner of cats. I remembered this was not the first time he had shown this anxiety and gratitude for shelter. "'Bagheera does love you,' Phillida commented, stooping to pat him. "'Isn't it funny, though, that he never will go into your room?' He is always petting around you downstairs. When Christina or I are doing up your quarters, he will follow us right up to the door sill, but we can't coax him inside. Perhaps he doesn't like that perfume you always have about. A qualm ran through me, recalling the night I had taken the cat there by force and its frantic escape but I snapped the key fast and straightened myself with sharp self-contempt. Had I fallen so low as to heed the caprices of a pet cat? Was it not enough that I had fled from my enemy after accepting the knowledge it had striven so long to force upon me? For I had that knowledge. When I had halted in the passage outside my room, in the moment before Phillida had joined me, there had been squarely set before my mental sight the place to seek the book. Phillida, there was a bookcase in this house when it was bought, I said. I believe it stood in my room before the place was altered. A small stand. I remember putting my candle on its top the first night I slept here. Have you seen it? Some tone in my question seemed to touch her expression with a surprise as she lifted her eyes to mine. Or perhaps it was the hour I chose for the inquiry. "'Oh, yes,' she answered readily. "'I supposed you had noticed it long ago. I mean, where it stands. The quaintest bit, a genuine antique. And holding the stuffiest collection of old books, too. I believe they may be valuable.' out of print, early editions. If, her voice faltered wistfully, if father ever forgives me for being happy with Ethan and comes to visit us, he would love every musty old volume. Do you think mother and he ever will, Cousin Roger? I am sure they will, Phil. Feuds and tragic parents are out of date. They must adjust themselves gradually when they realize Vere is himself. Before you go upstairs to him, will you tell me where to find that bookcase? Now? Why, of course. She led me across the hall to her sewing room. I cannot say that she sewed there very much, 
but she had chosen that title in preference to boudoir or study as more becoming a housewife. She had assembled here a spinning wheel from the attic, some samplers, a heppelwhite sewing table and chairs discovered about the house. Her canary's cage hung above a great punch bowl of flowered ware in which she kept goldfish. A pipe of veers balanced beside the bowl showed that his masculine presence was not excluded. In a corner stood the bookcase. Phillida pulled the chain of a lamp bright under a shade of peacock chintz and watched me stoop to look at the faded bindings. "'Thank you, Phil,' I said. "'It may take some time to find the book I want.' You'd better hurry back to bed before Vere comes hunting for a missing wife. Are you going to stay and hunt for the book tonight, then? Unless you're afraid I shall disturb your canaries? She did not laugh. Drawing nearer, she stroked my sleeve with a caressing doubt and remonstrance. But you have not been to bed at all, and soon it will be morning. Do you have to write your lovely music at night, Cousin Roger? You have been growing thin and tired this summer. Are you quite well? You're so good that you should be happy, but are you? Good, Phil, I wondered, touched. Why, how did your lazy, tune-spinning, frivolous cousin get that reputation in this branch of the family? You are so kind, she said simply. Ethan says so. You know, Cousin Roger, that I was over-educated in my childhood. My brain choked with little, little stupid knowledge that hardly matters at all. We went to church Sundays because that was the correct thing to do. But I was almost a heathen when Ethan married me. He doesn't trouble about church. He doesn't trouble about the past, or life after death, or punishment for sin. He believes if one tries to be kind and straight, the big kindness and straightness takes care of everything. So I have learned to feel that way, too. It is a, a calm sort of feeling all the time, if you know what I mean. And that is the way you are good, although perhaps you never thought of it. Thank you, Phillida, I acknowledged, and walked with her to the foot of the stairs. When her pink-clad figure had vanished behind her bedroom door, I went back to the sewing-room and drew up a chair before the case of books. Phillida had not unreasonably stigmatized them as stuffy. They were a sober collection. Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, an ancient copy of the Apocrypha, and a three-volume Life of Martin Luther loaded the first shelf. I looked at the second shelf and found it filled with the bound sermons of a divine of whom I had never heard. The lowest shelf held strange companions for the sedate volumes above. Erudite works on theosophy, magic, the interpretation of dreams, and demonology huddled together here. Not all of them were readable by my humble store of learning. There was a Latin copy of Artemidorus, Mesmer's Shepherd, Matthew Paris, some volumes in Greek, 
and some I judged to be Arabian and Hebrew. At the end of the row stood a thin, dingy book whose title had passed out of legibility. I took it out and opened the covers. Fronting the first page was a faded woodcut, the portrait of a woman. Beneath, in old, long S-type, dim on the yellowed paper, was printed the legend, Desire Mitchell, ye foul witch. Closing the book, I forced reason to come forward. I was resolved that panic should not drive me again, nor my defense fall from within its walls. Master of my enemy, I might never be. Master of my own inner kingdom, I must and should be. But I was glad to be here instead of upstairs while I read, glad of the interlude in Phillida's company, and of the presence of the three sleepy canaries who blinked down at the disturbing lamp. The date stamped into the back of the book in Roman numerals was of a year in the seventeen hundreds. What connection could its desire, Mitchell, have with the girl I knew? Perhaps she had adopted the name to mystify me. Or, at most, she might be of the family of that unfortunate woman branded witch by a bigoted generation. Reopening the book, I studied the dim, stiff portrait. The face was young, delicate of line, with long eyes set wide apart, eyes that, even in this wretched picture, kept a curious drowsy watchfulness. The inevitable white Puritan cap was worn, but curls clustered about the brow, and two massive braids descended over either shoulder. The perfumed bronze-colored braid up in my drawer? The volume was entitled, Some Manifestations of Satan in Witchcraft in Ye Colonies, by Abimelech Featherstone. Disregarding the satanic manifestations set forth in the other four chronicles, I turned to Ye Foul Witch, Desire Mitchell. As I began to read, another breath of wind sighed through the house, sucking windows and doors in and out with the shock of sound, instantly ended, that is produced by a distant explosion. I thought a flash of lightning whipped across my eyes. But when I glanced toward the windows, I saw only the smoke-like fog banked in drifts against the panes. End of chapter 13 Recording by Roger Moline